This is a data privacy detective. It's August of 2023. We're going to look back at the month of July. Plenty of news, and we picked three great topics for you to hear about that are news. Now, one is about the state of Illinois. Uh, Illinois was the first state in the United States to adopt a a law about biometrics and data privacy. And with us is uh, Brian St. Amour. Brian, you're back with us. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, well, what was the news in July coming out of Illinois? Yeah, and Joe, happy to join. Um, the Illinois Supreme Court in July denied rehearing of their decision in February, where it really defined under this Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, which is a bit of a mouthful, or, or we call it a BIPA, um, where it really defined that each time a scan is recorded, it, it creates a cause of action. And that okay, now really, let's, let's set the stage for the details. But what was the case about? Yeah, so the case was an employee, um, a Latrina Cochran, suing White Castle Systems. For, so it was about hamburgers. Okay, I've had White Castles. Very good. So, and and what what was the what was the dispute? And the dispute was over how you count violations under BIPA. And what and what was white what was White Castle scanning? How did this become a dispute? So it was uh, it was facial recognition. Um, so images recorded. Um, they they were I'm excuse me. They were scanning their fingerprints to access their pay stubs and their computers of employees. Yes. Okay. And uh, what's the problem with that? So under BIPA, you have there's some requirements that the employer has to provide informed consent and obtain that consent from the employee. And the Illinois law is unique in the country because it also creates a private right of action, but you actually don't have to show any damages. So there's a specific damage threshold for $1,000 for each negligent violation and $5,000 for an intentional or reckless violation. So determining how many of if each scan or just in general is a a violation can make a, a pretty de- determinative effect in um, the amount of damages. Uh, well, it could be a lot, couldn't it? Uh, because uh, I assume she was coming in each day and getting fingerprinted for timekeeping or whatever it was, and so that could be quite a lot of viol- potential violations. Yeah, the and interestingly, one of the dissenting judges, which is a judge who disagreed with the the opinion, indicated that of the ninety five hundred current and former White Castle employees, that if the violations were were determined, could be a seventeen billion dollar potential liability. Seventeen billion—that's a lot of hamburger sales. Yes. All right. So what? Uh, and and what was the outcome of the case? Uh, what, what's the news for businesses and and employees? Yes, yeah, so the, the businesses, I think, were hoping for a reprieve from the, the court's decision in February, but unfortunately, they, they reaffirmed and indicated that, um, no, that each of each time the scan occurs, that, that it, so every time something is collected, it counts as a, a separate cause of action. And so that both allows you to kind of delay when the individual has to bring the action, but it also creates a much larger number of potential actions. And the dissent also indicated that the number of cases have jumped jumped considerably since their earlier ruling. So about 65% increase in cases filed under BIPA in Illinois. 
Now that that uh, that's a very important message to businesses and employees. But is the case final then, or is it going back to a hearing on first? What is there liability under the Illinois Act? And no, what are the damages? So the Supreme, I mean, what, what happens? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so the Supreme Court's largely in Illinois has largely said this is how we interpret the law, and so it would really be up to the Illinois legislature to determine whether or not they're going to make changes in terms of how either damages will be applied or if there should be a change in the statute, um, which is interesting because when BIPA was first passed in 2008, it was unanimously passed by the Illinois legislature. Interesting. So just to be clear, then, were damages awarded to this White, White, uh, White Castle employee group? No. So this case is being sent back to the trial court to then determine the amount of, of damages. Okay, so it's essentially a finding on liability, which could be very extensive uh, without knowing, at least now, what the damages will be. Well, and I think that this case will actually is going to go back and be tried. So the, the decision was actually brought up on whether or not she had a cause of action. And so this will allow her statute of limitation to run and go back and try the case. So we still are, have to determine final damages here. But I think the risk is is clear for employers. All right, a lot of risk at stake for uh, both sides here. Certainly, the class action lawyers and their clients, and also for White Castle. So maybe it'll settle. I'll tell you what. We'll come back to this uh, when there's a final result or a settlement. Okay, Brian. Yes. Thank you. That that that's really quite interesting. Well, let, let's turn to uh, Europe and the United States next. And with us is. Uh, is my colleague Hugo uh, Nagashima. Hugo, thanks for being back with us in our monthly report. Pleasure to be back. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Well, here we go again. Is this deja vu a third time? Uh, the European Union, of course, as I'm sure all, all our listeners know, has very tough rules about data privacy, very privacy-centric and very demanding and very broad uh, covers uh, many, many things, and uh, much more so than the United States, which still lacks a, an overall federal law about data privacy. So there have been attempts to make sure that data flows can continue between the, Europe and, uh, between the European Union and the United States. And there have been a couple of efforts to create a sort of privacy shield. One was called and another uh, was, was used to say, if these things are followed and the businesses sign up for them, then there's kind of a safe harbor and, and you'll be able to transfer data back and forth, personal data back and forth from Europe. Uh, and both of those were struck down by the European court. So, uh, Hugo, I hear there's yes. a third effort that may be final. What's the news from July? So the July news is, uh, for those who are already in a privacy shield, uh, the what was formerly called the Transatlantic Data Privacy Framework, now the Data Privacy Framework, has been deemed adequate uh, by Europe. And we are back, and a lot of companies, I think, are hoping that third's a charm, that the changes that both the U.S. and Europe has made to the data privacy framework will withstand challenges from, you guessed it, um, Mr. Schrems. <laughs> um, Mr. Schrems will be challenging from what we understand. But um, before we and go he's further- the European Joe, you... who has successfully yeah. challenged the prior two in the European courts. That's correct. He's the plaintiff. Okay. But would you like to know what this framework entails? 
Yeah, yeah. What does it entail? And is it one that tells us a little bit about how as well? Does a business just sign up for it as before? Or what, 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 what would a business think about? So the business would think about, of course, how much transfer of information they're doing between Europe and the United States. Um, you know, just because there's a certification program doesn't mean everyone needs to join. And it really depends on what type of data, categories of data, um, the volume um, of data that they're transferring, uh, and just overall their business model. Because again, of course, there's this data privacy framework where you can be certified with a certain fee, but that comes with obviously certain restrictions uh, because you would have to adhere to the jurisdiction of the FDC and the Department of Commerce. That's that's one important thing. And you still have this other mechanism called uh, standard contractual clauses, which have other burdens, but which also uh, companies can use to transfer data. So there's two mechanisms now that, that work. One is considered adequate, and the other is an exception to the adequacy rule. So let, let's start with that. So the a business that it has, let's just say, significant uh, personal data flowing between the European Union and the United States, can, can adopt either one, wouldn't have to adopt both. Right. And well, what I think lawyers would suggest is to have the uh, data privacy framework and just in case Mr. Shrem succeeds, uh, the standard contractual clauses as a backup. Right. We'll probably be hearing a lot more in the United States uh, uh, for businesses from the Commerce Department, I would assume, who will roll this out and say, here's how to sign up for it and all that sort of thing. Right. And that website is already up uh, and um, companies and uh, individuals who transfer a lot of data can uh, access the website to understand what they must do to get certified. But I would like to turn to some of the details of uh, what has changed since the privacy shield, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, what makes it, what makes Europe uh, consider it more uh, adequate than two that have failed? So as you remember in Shrimps 2, one of the big issues was Mr. Schrems argued, well, the U.S. collects a lot of signals intelligence, intelligence data on European Union residents, uh, data subjects, as the term calls it. And the court in Europe basically said, yeah, you're right. We've seen Mr. Snowden disclose all kinds of information about uh, U.S. intelligence collecting information on European Union residents. Uh, therefore, you know, that's a problem and there's no redress. Redress as in how can the European Union residents say, hey, you shouldn't be collecting my data. I should be able to object to it. Um, that was or deleted or corrected, uh, that sort of thing. That's yeah. right. So the U.S. solution so far for this data privacy uh, framework is to have a new executive order. And this is key. Executive orders are by the president. It's an executive branch action not a congressional action. So it's not law, it's more regulations. Uh, and I'm just gonna hit the very highlights. There's much more details, but in highlights, um, there's now an intelligence oversight board that oversees the intelligence agencies handling um, pri privacy issues. And there's also a privacy and civil liberties oversight board that makes sure that you know privacies of other of the data subjects, non-US individuals are protected. Um, there's also a oversight mechanism in Congress 
which is very odd because it's an executive order where the House and the State, uh, Senate Intelligence Judiciary Committee will oversee this, these activities as well. And this hasn't really changed, but there's also a notion that there's a court. So not only is there an executive and, and legislative, but there's also a the FISA court or the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that will also be reviewing these items. So that's one thing about oversight on the intelligence community, that they're going to self-regulate and make sure everything's protected. So that's on the intelligence side. Now, I, um, I would like to turn to the, would you, be, would you be interested in hearing, well, that doesn't really affect companies collecting data. Should I talk about the company side of it? Well, let's talk about the company side. But while, while we're on that, uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, there are all these uh, different things that now have been added to the court. But is that for the purpose, really, of allowing European residents to have their data corrected or deleted? Right. Or not be collected, first of all. Or not be collected at all. Okay. So it's sort of beefed up, uh, making it more adequate compared to what Europe does. Right. Exactly. Because before, people didn't know about it. People can object about it. It just happened. And they just had to live with it. And that was one of the big criticisms in the CJEU, that's the European courts. Um, That was one of the big issues in the Schrems 2 opinion. But well, of that's course, certainly a change. We'll see if it uh, is ultimately enforceable. We won't know until the courts have ruled over there. But so what what should a business know about this if it if it's thinking of signing up for it? Right. So we talked about the government agency part, which you're like, well, how does it affect businesses? How does it affect companies? So the other aspect of the Schrems 2 decision was there's no redress of European Union residents who may have their data collected by companies in the U.S. Um, because... Obviously, companies in the U.S. are in the U.S. and uh, European residents are in Europe. So there's there's now a new recourse mechanism. If you sign up for the new data privacy framework, um, the companies need to, I mentioned, uh, submit to the jurisdiction of the Department of Commerce and FTC. So there's oversight there for organizations that's being certified. And there's also now a independent dispute resolution body, either in the United States or Europe, so that any complaints raised by an individual in Europe can be actually brought to a dispute resolution body. And this can be either, so for the European Union residents, they can go to their data protection authority in their country, and this will then be brought over to the FTC and investigated, that's one way. And there's also a arbitration mechanism, which basically allows, these type of disputes to be resolved between a company and a EU resident. And is that by choice of the company? Or if it signs up for this, it would have to allow for such arbitrations? Uh, it's if you sign up, it would be automatically. You're, you're part okay, of and that's not unlike uh, WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Association, and domain name fights. There's a way of resolving those. And in a way, it's uh, taking a similar approach to European Union and U.S. Uh, data privacy issues, I suppose. Would I be right? That's right. Very interesting. Well, I'm sure uh, businesses will be hearing a lot about this opportunity. You might jump on it and, of course, get uh, good advice from your uh, your privacy uh, advisor or attorney. Any last words on this one, Hugo? Well, um, again, this is uh, this is a very good month, last month for uh, Europe and the United States and the companies that already have um, 
Privacy Shield because it will switch over. Uh, but please be careful. Just because there's an adequacy decision doesn't mean it's foolproof. Um, as we all know, Mr. Schrems might will will file a lawsuit, and uh, just relying on the data privacy framework may be dangerous because, as we saw in Schrems one and Schrems two, um, the frameworks got dismantled. So. Again, as I mentioned, keeping the backup of a standard contractual clause is very important. Well, uh, we'll see what the European courts do on this one and uh, interesting opportunity for businesses. Well, let's take uh, let's move over to the United Kingdom now. It used to be part of the EU, but then Brexit happened and here we are. And uh, Britain sort of carried over uh, the uh, GDPR, the European rules about data privacy for a little while, but uh, Let's just say it's uh, decided to become a little more independent than it had been. That was one of the promises of, the, of those who promoted Brexit. So last December, December of 2022, the, uh, the conservative government uh, proposed an online safety bill. Always be careful with titles. Safety uh, is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Uh, but what did it do? Well, let me let me tell you what the government, the UK government, said it it would do. It all sounds uh, very promising. First, uh, it led by saying that the the new set of laws proposed would protect children and adults online. It would make uh, social media companies more responsible for their users' software uh, platforms. Uh, for users' safety on their platforms. And let's just get into some of the details. There's, of course, much more to the draft the, the draft act that's been around now, almost eight months. Uh, it said that it would protect children by some rather significant changes, uh, that media, a social media platform would be required legally to remove illegal content quickly or prevent it from appearing in the first place. Of course, the problem with that is What's illegal? Not so clear. Uh, it would a social media platform would have to prevent children from accessing harmful and age inappropriate content. In other words, not enough to say yes, I'm 18, I'm coming on. It would have to enforce age limits and age checking measures. Uh, get much more serious about it and build it into the uh, the software and even the hardware if there's a device involved. Uh, the social media platform would need to ensure that the risks and dangers to children on large platforms are transparent, and it would have to publish risk assessments. And finally, it would need to provide parents and children with clear and accessible ways to report problems. So that that was a, a message to uh, social media platforms that uh, there'd be quite a different kind of regulation from at least the UK government uh, if it wants to have access to the UK market. How about adults? Well, it promised a triple shield. And what did it mean by that? It meant that social media platforms will need to remove all illegal content. Question again, what is illegal and not illegal? It would have to remove content that's banned by the terms and conditions of the social media platform. And we've seen all the problems with Twitter and other companies deciding what's appropriate and not. And third, it would empower adult internet users to give them tools so they can tailor the type of content they see and avoid harmful content if they don't want to see it on their feeds and would prevent children from automatically being able to see the content without having to change uh, any settings. 
Now, all these seem like very good ideas until you get down to how is this done and what does illegal mean and what is pornographic and what is not pornographic and all the issues that are really quite difficult when you're dealing with content. Is it illegal, for example, to say that a former president did something on January 6th or is that protected by the First Amendment, even though we're talking about the UK, which doesn't have a written constitution? Quite a lot at stake here. Uh, and many, uh, many issues that uh, did not lead to prompt adoption of the bill, even in the parliamentary system that the UK had. There was at one time a thought, probably in February of 2023, the bill might go through. Quite the contrary. The social media uh, companies, uh, especially the giants, got very involved in, in, in understanding what was going on. And so what happened in July? Why is there news? Well, in the middle of July, Apple threatened to remove iMessage and FaceTime from anyone in the United Kingdom. It was it threatened to get out of the UK if this thing went through. And one of the major points made by Apple is that this new law would require Apple uh, through FaceTime and iMessage uh, and frankly any other social media platform uh, Apple might have uh, to provide the government with the way to break the end-to-end -end encryption that Apple uses to protect the privacy of people who use Apple. Um, and this is one of the great debates between end-to-end -end encryption and increasing the privacy-centric nature of things that social media or other companies offer and a government's desire to prevent the kinds of things that the UK bill is talking about. It's the great law and order versus freedom controversy that's embedded in all data privacy regulation. And so with that threat uh, about end-to-end -end encrypted messages for child abuse material and other illegal conduct, you have giant companies now saying, we'd rather get out of the country than uh, abide by these things, which would give a tool now, just one observation uh, from myself, and then you go, I'll ask you to chime in with your thoughts here. Uh, what if the country uh, involved were China or Russia or North Korea or fill in the blank of the country that you think is a little more hostile to true data privacy? Uh, nations that view it quite differently, that law and order and social order uh, in China demands uh, that the government know everything about everyone. Uh, I would, you know, this is the problem that any large me social media company or anyone in the internet business has. And couple that with how would any company comply with the laws of, depends how you count them, about 200 countries throughout the world. This is, is one of the great problems. And so you see this debate and actual threat to, to leave an English-speaking major country of the UK by Apple. It's a, it's a debate that will not be resolved uh, no matter what bill gets adopted in the UK. But this is one really worth paying attention to. Remember that in the United States, uh, there was a major company that was asked by the Justice Department to just turn over the keys so that the uh, Justice Department could get behind the data it had collected and, and the tech company refused. And uh, 
that thing uh, went away. And so the United States did not take the approach that the UK has taken. There'll be more news about this, but clearly July was one of the watershed moments in this great debate between law and order and data privacy. Hugo, what are your thoughts about this? So my thought is, again, we live in a global society. And as, as you mentioned, uh, there are a lot of countries and there are a lot of countries that may have good intentions and a lot of countries that have bad intentions. Um, and if one country creates a standard that uh, allows for the government to look into, so end-to-end encryption, so to look in, pierce, pierce through the encryption to look into what kind of information is being transmitted, um, that opens a, a lot of can of worms. And although I'm not necessarily a fan of a, a company, you know, completely saying, well, we're not going to disclose anything, it's end-to-end, uh, I think this is one instance where the basic underlying, you know, the very, the common, the con- common denominator, right? The lowest common denominator should be end-to-end encryption, regardless of which country you are. But of course, I think this is a d- debate that uh, will depend on people's perspectives on, on, you know, how much trust you have in the government, uh, your position on freedom of speech, and your position on uh, what privacy means to you uh, vis-a-vis, well, you know, children can be harmed, adults can be harmed. Um, but on this issue, it's it's very difficult because of the global nature that once you open this can of warm and allow for one government to peak, then you have to allow almost every government to peak. And rather than having government to peak, it might be better that um, information is just encrypted and we deal with the consequences of what may happen as a result of ha- giving uh, consumers and individuals an end-to-end encryption system. And perhaps on a broader level, the, uh, the much hoped for and believed in internet might more properly be called the splinternet. We shall see. Well, tune in next month for when we look back on August. Brian, Hugo, thank you for joining us in this uh, top three discussion from July of 2023. As always, I'll close by reminding us all protecting your personal property, uh, your personal privacy, which is your property, begins with you. you.